Um, we uh, come back tonight to a series, I think, that, that's been happening all month on the one another commands throughout the New Testament. And we just read the famous one from Ephesians 4.32, which has three different uh, one another commands there. It says, show kindness, compassion, and then forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Um, and historically, if you, if you read about these commands in kind of older theologians and older texts, uh, they have historically called these the graces of Christ, the one another commands, putting on the graces of Christ. Another, another way to say it is it's a command to put on the very character of Jesus Christ in your own life. And there are three that you see there in Ephesians 4.32. There are six that show up in Colossians chapter 3, a number more of these graces. But we talked about kindness this morning, and uh, you know, we, we said that covenant, God's covenant kindness is the quality that God demonstrates of love to His enemies. And you think about being compassionate or tenderhearted, and compassion here is the quality that God demonstrates to His enemies. And you say, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And we say, forgiveness is the quality that God demonstrates even to His enemies. And the message is really simple of the one another commands. It's be like God and put on the character of Jesus Christ in your life. And it's, you know, it's really a follow-on from the, the original command of Genesis chapter 1. You were made in the image of God, so go into the world and image God. And Jesus Christ comes into the world and says, Jesus Christ has remade you, and so go into the world and image Jesus Christ by putting on the graces of Christ from top to bottom. Now, I wanted to look at a passage as well that fit this morning together with these graces and this evening, and I think that that's John 21. Uh, John 21, in some ways, is the preconditions of putting on the character of Jesus Christ. And it's really the same, exact same thing as just simply saying, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Not only becoming a disciple once, but being a disciple day in and day out, and what that looks like. And so we'll see that here in, in the 14 verses we read from John 21. At the, at the end of every single one of the Gospels, uh, Jesus always comes to the disciples at the, at the very latter portions with a call where He calls them back to Himself and then he commissions them. And you see a slightly different version of that call and commission in every single one of the Gospels. And the same thing happens here. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes to them, and he then sends them out. And if we had two hours to talk about this, John doesn't waste a single word in verse 1 to 14 here. And every single word serves a purpose as like a symbol or a connection or a metaphor that is picked up from the Old Testament and all sorts of other places. But there are four elements, I think, here that you can see really clearly. Conditions for just being a disciple. Conditions for developing the character of Jesus in your own life. A forgiving spirit. A loving spirit in order to be able to do that with, with one another. And this is what they are right out of the passage. First, we learn that disciples must be empty-handed fishermen. And secondly, disciples must be people who have been encountered. And third, those who have heard the command to cast your net on the other side. And finally, who have heard the invitation and heeded it to come to breakfast on the beach. 
So let's look at those four elements. These are the conditions of, of being a disciple and of putting on the character of Jesus. So first, uh, disciples are empty-handed fishermen. All right, the commentators are divided. When you look at the end of the book of John, on John 20 and 21, they're divided uh, about the relationship between the two chapters. Because if you, if you happen to have a Bible, you can see in John 20, 21, that Jesus comes to the disciples and they're all huddled up in the room, remember, right after the resurrection, hiding. And he comes and he proves himself to doubting Thomas, but just before that, he commissions them, and he says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you out into the world. And when he said this, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them, and he says, if you go out and you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. And people have pointed out many times that this moment looks like Pentecost. Jesus actually breathes upon them, and it says they receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, go out into the world in, my, in the power of my name and forgive sins as I have forgiven your sins. And immediately after that, he turns and says, okay, now Thomas, let me show you that I really am resurrected from the dead. And so he, he comes to them and they're huddled down together, hiding from the world, and he commissions them and says, forgive, one, get, forgive people in the power that I've given you because I've forgiven you for so much. And then he proves himself to a doubting disciple. And if you come to chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, what we just read, Jesus comes again in his third resurrection appearance to a huddled group of disciples, and he again comes to meet with one of them in particular who is struggling. You know, Thomas struggled with objective doubt. I don't know if I can believe a person was really raised from the dead. And then in 21, Peter is struggling with subjective doubt, saying, I committed treason against the Lord three times. I don't know if I'm still in this. I don't know if I'm still a disciple. I don't know where I stand before him. And so there are actually parallel passages in different places between the second uh, appearance of Jesus Christ and the third appearance of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. It's, in other words, it's saying to us, you've got to read them side by side to actually understand what's going on here in chapter 21. And so let, let's look at that. The context here is that the disciples are 95 miles north. They're around the Sea of Galilee, and, a, and a, some amount of time has passed. We don't know how much. And the tone of the text is in verse 2. It says that they were, quote, together. And what it's doing in parallel with 20 is as soon as, the, as, soon as Jesus res, resurrected from the, de, the dead, the disciples went and hid themselves, and they were together, and they were huddled down. And Jesus has commissioned them and said, you've got the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Go and get to work. And in 21, the very next story, they've moved 95 miles north, but they're still huddled down together. And Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they say, okay, we're coming, we're coming with you. And so they go fishing. Now, what is happening here? And commentators are divided about this because some will say they've gone back to their hometowns. Uh, that's to be expected. They're hungry. These are hungry men, and they just, they're going out fishing because they need a bite to eat. They, they need food. But, but John, John is putting this here for a very specific reason, and he's putting it, this here in parallel with 20 to show that once again, after they were huddled and doubting and commissioned and received the Holy Spirit, they are back to huddled and doubting, going back to their day job. 
sitting on their hands, not doing any of the things that Jesus had commanded, not forgiving people in the power of the name of Jesus, not bearing the name of Christ into the world. And, you know, you might say at best they don't yet understand the power of the commission. They don't yet understand the missional impact of Jesus' resurrection. But one commentator says that going back to fishing was dangerous. It was like being lulled to sleep. And one of the reasons that we think that is because this passage is, you might remember, is parallel exactly to Luke chapter 5, which the readers of John, John would have expected the readers to have read. John comes later than Luke in the history of writing these texts. And in Luke 5, uh, Peter was called in the same exact way. Peter and some of the disciples, the future disciples, were out fishing And Jesus shows up and he says, have you caught any fish? And they say, no. And he says, well, cast your net on the other side. And they cast their net on the other side and they haul in a whole load of fish. And then he says, well, now you're going to be fishers of people. And come and they followed him. And now we get the exact same story in reverse. And it's saying exactly that, that the disciples are going in reverse. They've gone back to what they were before they ever knew Jesus Christ. And they've neglected the the commission to go and forgive people as they've been forgiven. And look, on the one hand, the point, the point, on the one hand, this is a call to every single person who reads it, to all of us tonight, that Christian disciples can never go into maintenance mode. And, you know, we have that in the parable of the talents when Jesus gives out in the parable or the master one talent and two talents and five talents and ten talents and one of the men buries their talent and just waits for the master to return and he returns and what is the master says you are a wicked servant you did not do much with the resources that i've given you and the point of the parable was a, a disciple of christ can never go into maintenance mode we're, we're always ministers of the gospel we're always on mission we're always uh we have to decompartmentalize decompartmentalize our lives at every turn for the sake of the call of Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's actually the, the point here. Because I, I think what John is doing is actually showing us the conditions of true discipleship and of what it looks like to put on the, the forgiving character of Jesus Christ. And they, they are lost men. And they've seen the resurrected Jesus. And they've been breathed on. And they've been called and commissioned and they are sitting on their hands, and they're lulled to sleep, and they're lost. And actually, that's exactly the point. Because in the text, John marks it off by saying it's nighttime, and it was dark. And these are signals in the Gospel of John of, of exactly where we are. In other words, what he's trying to get at is to be a disciple, not only once, but every single day, we actually have to come as empty-handed fishermen and no and we have to get to a place in our lives where every single day we can wake up and say without Jesus I can do nothing I I am empty-handed I don't have the resources and the power within myself to forgive as he forgives or to love as he loves or to go out my door another day and try to be on mission for Christ in a city where most people don't believe I I do not have the I we have to Actually, every day, disciples have to come again and say, I'm an, empty, I'm an empty-handed fisherman. I, I don't have anything apart from him. And I, I think one of the examples of this is to remember 
how uh, Saul, Paul, was called, was converted, came to faith in Jesus. This reminds me of the Saul story. Um, Remember, in Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul breathed threats and murders against the Christians. And actually, in the Greek text, the language there is that he uh, he was spitting anger against the Christians. He hated them so much, it's the verbs of animality. He hated, he, he was so against Jesus Christ that he was like a slobbering wolf every time he saw the Christians. And, you know, when you read that and you see what happened to him and you see that he got knocked off his horse and you've got to say, this man was the most unlikely convert to Christianity in all of human history. And you come to John 21 and you see Peter. Peter had committed treason against the Lord publicly before him three times. And then he's seen the resurrected Christ. And the resurrected Christ has breathed on him and said, go and do ministry. And now he's going back to his day job and saying, I'm I'm still not in. I don't know that I, I can do this. And you've got to say, Paul and Peter, these are the most unlikely disciples that could put on the character of Jesus Christ and be forgiven in all of human history. And, and you know, on the one hand, that tells us that there is no unlikely convert. That there, is no, there, that there is no person in the world that's an unlikely disciple. But it, 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 it's uh, the first element of being a disciple, of being able to put on the graces of Jesus Christ, is, is knowing it is for the dead and the undeserving, and that is me. And every day I have to wake up and say, I am an empty-handed fisherman. Jesus Christ always counters the human the human will. Now, the second element, and more briefly, uh, the second element is that Christ-like disciples are people who have been encountered. And you see it right here in the midst of the text. Um, You can see it that it says twice, he revealed himself to them at the beach. And that word's really important because it's not saying simply that Jesus just showed up and said, hey, um, it's a, it's a word that appears all the time in the book of John. For the first time it appears is in the, wedding, uh, in the wedding at Cana. He reveals himself. He reveals his glory through the miracle of the wine. And people didn't know what to do with it. He reveals himself at the Transfiguration Mountain. And people have to hide their faces. Or another moment is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, they, when the soldiers come to arrest him, he, he unveiled himself. He said, they, he said, who do you come for? And, and they said, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. He spoke the divine name. And he, he revealed and pulled back the curtain on a momentary glimpse of his glory. And the soldiers fell down on their faces and worshipped. And that's exactly what's, what this word means. It says it twice in the same sentence. He revealed himself, himself to him. And this is how he revealed him, himself to him. Now, it's such, a, it's such an important word in John. You know, later, when they're on the beach with Jesus, they say that they want to ask him, is it really you? But they dared not because they at the same time knew it was him. And what is going on there when it says they, they knew it was him, but they, didn't, they wanted to ask him, is it you? And it's, it's, it's because Jesus Christ was resurrected. John 20, he shows up, and there's Mary and she was with him for seven years. He had cast demons out of her, and she could not see him. And then he was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. 
And they walked so far with him, and they did not know who they were speaking to. And now again, he's appearing to them for a third time, and they're saying, I see him, I know it's him, but I also want to ask him, is it really you? And, and the, that's exactly John's point. It's saying that, look, the second condition of, disciple, of discipleship, of growing in the graces and character of Jesus Christ is coming and knowing every single day that to be a disciple is to be a person who has been encountered. And it's a person who's been encountered by a God in Christ that we did not expect and that we could have never created on our own and who comes in and reveal, unveils a glimpse of His glory and kicks us off of our horses and makes us hide our faces where we, where we have to say, I just want to smash my idols before Him because He's unveiled, him, he's unveiled Himself before me. I've seen a glimpse uh, of His glory. Putting on the character of Jesus Christ in forgiveness means being encountered by Jesus Christ. And it, it means smashing the idols in our lives because we've seen the resurrected Christ as He's revealed Himself. And you know, just to close this, this briefer point, if John wastes no words in this story, and I don't think he does, when Peter's encountered, when Peter realizes what's happening, it says that he put back on his garments because he was stripped for work and he dove into the sea. And you know, you have to ask, if you're going to dive into the sea, why do you put your full garment back on? And this is the language of, of Jonah. And when, whenever Peter sees Jesus and he realizes this is, this is the one, this is the Lord, I'm being encountered, he, he has to clothe himself because he's exposed. And he, he dives back down into the depths of the ancient seas, the Sea of Galilee, knowing that that is an image of death of Jonah going into the, into the waters of death that he deserved because he ran for God and there's Peter doing the same thing. And when we are encountered by the resurrected Jesus Christ, discipleship is saying, is saying I'm, I am an empty-handed fisherman and I am exposed before him. I, I, don't, I don't deserve his presentation. I don't deserve his revelation. I'm, I'm poor. I'm, I'm lost apart from his grace. It's an everyday encounter. That is the condition of being able to put on the graces of loving one another and forgiving one another. Now, third, the third of four elements then here is that uh, Jesus then speaks and he opens his mouth and um, he both calls them and he commands them. And just a couple of things here. Um, he calls them and he says, children, cast your net on the other side. And there, there are two things that happen here in order to open the disciples, that in order for our eyes to be open to who he really is. And, you know, you remember I mentioned already back in John 20, Mary thought that Jesus Christ was the gardener. And how did he reveal himself? He said, her, he said Mary. And the scales fall from her eyes and she hugs him and she comes in and she embraces him. And John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And when I cry out to them, I call out to them, they come to me, they run to me. And when he reveals himself and when he speaks to you, you can't help but come to him. And right here, that's exactly what happen, what's happening. The text says that he says children, which is a very literal translation, but 
Um, the Greek scholars will say that the word children here is colloquial, so it's almost equivalent to saying like lads or my friends. He calls out and he says, my friends, c- come to me. And as soon as they hear him, they come, I mean, this is Jesus Christ saying, I no longer call you servant. I don't care, Peter, what you've done. I don't care how much you've run from me. I, I come today to call you to my, to call, call you friend. And John makes an interesting point. He stamps the time. It was nighttime when they were fishing. But when does Jesus show up in verse 4? It says, as soon as the day broke, as the sun was coming over the horizon, there he was standing on the beach saying, my friends, and their eyes were open and they dive into the, and Peter dives into the water and, and they come to him. But there's also a second element here. And that's that, remember, this moment is exactly parallel to Luke chapter 5, when Peter was first, first called by Jesus. And then Jesus said to Peter, cast your net on the other side. And they said, well, you know, we've been fishing all night. We've got nothing. And they did it, and they filled up the boat. And then it says, when Simon Peter saw what had happened, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, in this moment, they fill the boat up with 153 fish. They say, it's the Lord. Peter dives into the water. He swims to shore. And we've got this moment, this interlude in the text, where we do not know what happened when Peter got to the beach to see Jesus again. And the reason we don't know is because John is writing the story and John is in the boat about 100 yards off the shore. But in Luke chapter 5, they filled the boat up, and, and Peter turned and got on his knees and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a wicked and unclean man. And, and you've got to imagine that when Peter swims to the beach and he comes soaking wet, he, I've got to think he falls down on his knees. And he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a wicked an unclean man. And he knows that this is the judge of all the earth before whom he should be judged. And instead, he has said, my, you are my friend. You, come, come. He's revealed himself. He said, you're, you're my friend. Come to me. Because when, you are, when you're an empty-handed fisherman before the face of God and the glory of Jesus Christ encounters you, you, you fall and you say, depart from me, Lord. I'm, I don't deserve to be encountered. I don't deserve to be called by you. And he speaks your name and he says, I have spoken your name. And he calls you friend and he forgives you. And he goes and says, now go forgive as I've forgiven. And that, that leads us then to the fact that we're commanded. I, I heard uh, one pastor recently tell the story of um, a man by the name of Simon Weisenthal. Simon Weisenthal wrote a book uh, he was a Holocaust survivor, a Jewish man. He wrote a book called The Sunflower, and it was about the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. And at the very end of World War II, in 1945, um, Weisenthal uh, was liberated from a concentration camp. And there, he came face to face at the very end of the war with a German SS officer. And the German SS officer was dying. And the man grabbed Weisenthal's jacket, you know, grabbed his shirt and pulled him close 
and he started to confess all of his sins. And he poured his heart out. And he said, he told Weisenthal that he had, that he had done things like burn down an entire building full of Jewish men and women and, and, and all these other things that I won't even say out loud here. And the whole book is Weisenthal saying that in that moment, he didn't know what to do. And he explores in the text, what are the limits and the possibilities of forgiveness? And you know, Peter, Peter had come to Jesus and said, how many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus had essentially told him through a numerical metaphor, you've, you've got to forgive all the way down, from the top to the bottom. And Weisenthal... Wouldn't illustrate that we we have to come to the man on the beach who has called out our name and we've bowed before him and he said friend to you and we have to be there to say this, this is how far I've been forgiven. This is the depths that Jesus Christ has come in stripping himself of his royalty and going all the way to the point of great cost for me because every time forgiveness happens it really costs something. And we have to know that it cost the God-man everything to the point of hell so that, I, so, that, so, that I, so that we could be free, so that I could have the, and you could have the power in, that He gives to forgive like He has forgiven. And so that means then that we are, as we start to wrap up, disciples then under this command to forgive as He forgives. And part of that command shows up right here in the text implicitly. Uh, Luke chapter 5, remember, is the parallel. And in Luke chapter 5, they said, cast your net on the other side. And as soon as Peter does that, we, see, we, we mention what happened. And then the very next thing, very famously, what does Jesus do? He commissions them. And he says, now are, you are to go be, as the King James puts it, a fisher of men. A fisher of men and women and boys and girls, a fisher of people. That's what Jesus says. You're to go be a fisher of people. And the difference in Luke, Luke 5 and John 21 is the death and resurrection. And, and here we are again, and the commission is implicit. He's saying to them, you are now, Peter, again, to be a fisher of... You are a man under command. And you're, you're going to go out into the world, and you're, you're to get busy. And you, we've got to... What does it mean to be a fisher of people? And, and here, very important, they're in the Sea of Galilee... And the symbol of the sea for a first century person, for an ancient Near Eastern person, was very clear. It, it, it was that the sea was the place of chaos and death. And the Israelites didn't like getting into the ocean waters because of this all throughout their history. And everybody had to, when Jesus says, I'm going to make you a fisher of people, what happens when you fish? You transfer fish from the kingdom of darkness under the water out into the kingdom of light on the shore. And he's saying to be a fisher of people is to be a person who is so on mission that you're always looking in Christ to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness under the waters of death into the kingdom of light on the beach. And you, we, we do that by speaking the word of the gospel, by good works, and by putting on the character of Jesus Christ on display, by forgiving people as God in Christ has forgiven us. This, in other words, he's saying, you're, you are a person under command. This is a duty that we've been called to be these people if we've experienced the grace of Christ. In Luke chapter 5, it says that they left everything and followed him. 
And that means that the possibility of being a forgiving person means that we have, had, we have to hear the call and command that breaks the consumer mentality. And that helps us see that our life is not about our life. And that our life is not our own. And that we are, and that we are called to forgive 70 times 7. And I was, um, I was on Twitter recently and I saw a person who, a teacher in the States who posted uh, that one of her children wrote an essay I think they were, you know, P6, S1 type age, and um, they wrote an essay, and they started it out, now just listen carefully, they started it out like this, uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 1900s, that's how they started the essay, and, you know, immediately, uh, hopefully you, you hear it, in, in the late 1900s, that's what the children are saying these days, um, we're talking about 1999, just like we might say in the late 1800s, in the late 1700s, and this child said, in the late 1900s, and, you know, I remember in the late 1900s, the 90s, um, and some of you remember better than I do, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's actually the same word, I can't remember, but, you know, we have, everybody used to wear pagers, right, and I remember my mom, and I think doctors still do wear pagers, um, but, Everybody used to wear pagers. All the adults had pagers back then. And I remember going through the restaurants, and my mom was uh, uh, an expert. She was a radiologist, and she would wear that pager, and all of a sudden the, the call, the beep would come through. And she would, you'd have to interrupt the dinner, and you would go to the phone, the restaurant phone, and call, and they would tell you exactly what your orders were, where you were, go, where you were to go and where you were to be. And, you know, when you have been called and encountered, your life is not your own anymore. And it's, it's not just a life for us of fulfilling personal desires, but the life of the imitation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the life under command, the life of putting on the grace of Christ. And so the very last thing to say, and we'll close, the fourth element of being a disciple, of being a, a person who's putting on the graces of Christ is that we've heard the invitation to breakfast on the beach and that we've come. And it's right here at the end of the passage, Jesus prepares breakfast for them and invites them to come eat with him on the beach. And uh, very quickly, the commentators are, are also divided about what's going on here. But one of the things we can say is this, meals in the first century were such a big deal. And meals today are such a big deal. But in the first century, eating a public meal with a person was a covenant act. It was saying, I love you, and I want to be with you and for you. And that's why, and they ate their meals, by the way, out in public. The dining areas of homes in the first century faced the streets open air, which is why in so many instances where Jesus is eating a meal with prostitutes and tax, sinners and tax collectors, as the text puts it, the Pharisees actually walk up to it and say, what are you doing? Because they saw the meal. It's a covenantal act. It's saying, I identify myself with you. I'm for you. I'm with you. And Jesus did it all the time. And here he is saying to this, these treacherous, treason-committing disciples of his, come and eat with me. And I'm, I'm for you, and I'm with you, and rest here at, at this meal. And the reason it was such a big deal, and this is the last thing, is that the contamination laws, the laws of uncleanliness in the Torah and in, in here in the first century for the Jewish Israelite people, 
uh, meant that if you ate with a person who was unfit to be at the temple through ceremonial contamination, then you were unfit to be at the temple. You could not enter into the presence of God. And so even the disciples will say to Jesus, don't eat a meal with public sinners because you're not, then you won't be fit to go to the temple and be with your father. And every single time Jesus says, no, come and eat with me. And he does not become unclean. Instead, what happens is they become clean. And when we're in, we are invited, we, we have been called and invited to breakfast on the, the beach, with the feast, to feast at the Lord's table, to feast on Jesus Christ himself through the revelation of Christ. This is, this is the public inv- invitation for disciples every single day to come back to the feast, to eat the celebratory reconciliation meal of resurrection, and you do it by meeting in communion with Jesus Christ. And that means, that means that the conditions of putting on the graces of Jesus, of loving one another, of forgiving one another, you know, where can you get that power? How can I forgive as Christ forgives and, and be compassionate and kind as He is? And it means that, that each of us every single day over time, it's a habitus, a habituation, an act of slow growth has to come daily, empty-handed, and, and allow ourselves to be encountered again by Jesus Christ and His Word. And we have to say, woe is me, and confess our sins before Him, and know the depths of forgiveness we've experienced, and come afresh to the table of Jesus amongst His people. And it has, it has to be weekly, it has to be daily, it has to be habituated, and we grow and we grow and we put on the graces all the more. It's the slow formation, the long obedience in the same direction of Christ-likeness. And this is its pattern. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would make us like yourself. And so we come to renew ourselves tonight uh, in what it means to be a disciple. And so uh, we do ask for hearts that are empty-handed and open and knowing what we don't possess, the powers that we don't have. Uh, we come to you confessing our sins. We come to you uh, hearing your call, my friends. We come to you tonight uh, longing to be renewed and refreshed so that we can be on mission displaying forgiveness and love and grace um, like you forgave us at the cross. And so we come tonight and ask for this heart among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.